The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. And maybe with just this introduction, that when we began Mark 4 a few weeks ago, uh, what we're going to read uh, in verse 35 is the same day. So we've been, this is our third week in this chapter, but it was just one day uh, in the life of Jesus. But it was now nighttime on that day. And uh, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him uh, with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying uh, out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of, that, of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. 
And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit it, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's the word of the Lord, and it is for our good. Well, let me remind you that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. I don't know how you feel about uh, bright, warm, sunny days, but I kind of like them. I've changed from a winter person to a spring person. I'll never be a summer person, I don't think, but I do like the warmth of spring that I know is coming. And uh, as we come hopefully to winter's end, I think about the scene that this chapter began with. It's on the northern shore of Galilee, probably on some cove where there's shade and warmth and calm. And everything looks really, really good. Really good. And Jesus is teaching. That's even better, right? Jesus is teaching. And I'm like, fantastic. That's where I'd like to be. That would be be great. Maybe kids are flashing in the water. Maybe somebody's fishing. People are like, this is as good as it gets. But then uh, we follow Jesus next, and he's... um, He's in a room of somebody's house, a crowded room, and he's sitting at the table, they're eating some food, and he's explaining his teaching to his disciples. And I'm like, hey, that's good too. Plenty of food, in case it starts to rain, got a roof over my head, and there's Jesus. He's teaching. And that's pretty great. That's fantastic. But then Mark, who's a wonderful storyteller, shifts the scene for us. We're no longer in the northern part of Galilee, warm, sunny, bright, warm, cove, peaceful, or in a room with a roof over our heads and plenty of food. Now we are in the darkness of the night and on a storm-tossed sea, and we are in a boat with experienced fishermen, men who knew the sea, knew how to operate the boat, and they were so afraid, they believed that they were going to die. Abject terror had set in on these men who just a few hours earlier had been sitting with Jesus around a table. Can you imagine? Here you are with Jesus around a table and now you're out on the high seas in the middle of the night thinking you're going to die. And these experienced men of the sea fear for their lives. And then Mark shifts the scene again. They do make it to the other side and Jesus steps out of the boat and the people with him And uh, it's not into a peaceful place. It's into a place that is so foreboding it can only be described as being among the tombs. Among the tombs. You know, we, we are privileged in our society to have graveyards or cemeteries that are generally well manicured. If you've ever been to the National Cemetery in Saratoga or maybe down to Arlington and D.C., you'll know that it's a well-manicured place. 
headstones or maybe a graveyard around here. But in, in, in the uh, ancient world, it was not like that. To be among the tombs was in a dark, foreboding place where demons would hang out. And this man, now filled with demons, runs towards Jesus. And instead of people listening to Jesus, we see Jesus being confronted by this legion of demons. And a man who is possessed to such an extent that we're told that he is unable to be controlled. Not even with, with chains bound around him. He, he has uh, These demons are so forceful in his life that he breaks the chains. It's kind of the opposite of Samson. Maybe you remember the story of Samson in the Old Testament. When he's bound, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he breaks forth and he goes out and he does his work. But this man is bound by chains, but empowered not by the Holy Spirit, but by unholy spirits, a legion of demons. And then Mark tells us, after the man is delivered from his possession, that the townspeople come running, and instead of inviting Jesus into their home, they say, Jesus, we want you out of here. We want you to leave. You say, well, what's going on here? Well, I would suggest that this is a day in our lives as well. It's a day in our lives. Times like now, when it's peaceful and sunny and bright after the storm. Everything looks great. But then you're going to walk out into the world and you're going to meet a hellish world. You're going to read the headlines. War, rumors of war, inflation, economic peril. You're going to read headlines about crime and violence breaking out into the streets. And you're going to leave this peaceful place and you're going to go out into the world and you're going to say, well, what happened? I think Mark is reminding us, as he would have been reminding his first readers, that yes, Mark likes uh, works like a rope when you pull on it and the curtain lifts and there's the kingdom of God, but we see this kingdom through a lens that is still dark. The light has not fully come. The kingdom is not fully here. And it sounds contradictory to last week's sermon when I encouraged us to remember that we are always safe in the kingdom of God to now talk about storms that apparently are going to take somebody's life without divine intervention or people so oppressed by evil that they can't even be bound with chains. They break the chains and they go out and they're hurting themselves and they're damaging their very life. And it causes us to ask a question like, well, why? Well, why? Why do these things happen? Why are these things taking place? And of course, those questions are not easily answered. In fact, Mark doesn't answer them directly. But what Mark does instead is that he draws our attention to the identity of Jesus. Amen. And this is very important for us as disciples to get. We want to know the answer to the why question. But the Gospels almost exclusively always give us the identity of Jesus instead of the answer to the why question. 
that we might ask or that the first readers would have asked, or certainly the disciples in the boat who think their lives are going to end are asking. And we're drawn to the identity of Jesus. And the identity of Jesus, as the disciples ask it, who is this that the winds and the seas obey him? And so, you know, I, I would say to you and to me this morning that regardless of whatever storms you may be facing, whatever storms this world is facing, whatever evil is, seems powerful and uncontrollable in the world in which we live, as God's people, we are called to face those things with an ever-increasing faith and certainty in who Jesus is. Certainty in the identity of Jesus. The one uh, that we find here in these two stories is indeed the king of peace. And so this question of faith looms large for us over chapter 4, and it will loom large for us into chapter 5 as well. And so faith always needs to be called into action, which is why, again, I think at the beginning of 4, there in that nice, quiet, peaceful cove, Jesus is teaching, that in verse number 3 we read, Jesus tells the crowd, listen, listen, that is, wake up, pay attention. It is so easy to fall asleep when things are nice and peaceful and good and wonderful. But never forget that spiritual disengagement is lethal. It is lethal to simply say to yourself on a day when everything looks like it's going great, I don't need God today. Only the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And just because it's sunny and bright and good doesn't give us the license to say, hey, thanks God, I got it today. Because by the time night comes, all hell may have broken loose and you're out on a sea wondering if you're going to survive. And so wake up. Faith must engage. Faith must engage when you're sitting around in a small group Bible study. Faith must engage when you're sitting in conversation with food and everything looks really good. That you don't fall asleep to what God in Christ is telling us. For as Jesus said to them, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? If you don't get the one about the sower and the, and the soil. Faith looms large over this when you're out on the sea and the storms and the waves are buffeting your boat and you're like, are we going to die here? Jesus, why are you asleep? Why, Jesus, do you seem not to care about what is going on? And faith looms large in chapter number 5 when, when the man who is demon-possessed is released of his demons and the townspeople show up and instead of inviting Jesus into their home, they're like, hey, would you get out of here? Leave this region. There's a quote by the Southern Gothic writer Flannery O'Connor that I read a number of years ago. And I've been thinking about it for several years. And about this time of year, I, I think about it because it's uh, brought back up in, a, in, in various books that I'm reading. Flannery O'Connor wrote that the action of grace 
is done largely in territory held by the devil. Action of grace is done largely in territory held by the devil. You know, in Mark 4 and 5, we are brought to geographic territories that are dark and foreboding. There's a stormy sea. There's a place called Gerasenes on the other side of the sea. But in those places, grace shows up and it confronts the darkness. It confronts the evil. And you see, when Jesus shows up in those places, he's not just coming from another geographic location. Jesus is coming from another sphere of power altogether, and it's very important we remember this. Because, you know, we'd like for Jesus to show up occasionally. But we don't want Jesus just to show up in our geographic location. We want Jesus to come from another sphere of power. And we want, when he does, we want him to come and confront the power that is confronting us. For when Jesus shows up, he isn't just saying, hey, I'm here, I hope it all works out. They wake him up and they're like, don't you care, we're dying? He goes, hey, calm down. And the seas calm. You see, that's from another sphere of power. When the legion of demons confront him, Jesus says to them, into the pigs you go. You see, that's what we need in our lives. We don't need just kind of this abstraction of Jesus that we hope shows up every now and then kind of philosophically in our thoughts. We need the Lord of the universe, the one that we sang about earlier through our God we will do valiantly. It is he who treads down the enemy. And how does he tread down the enemy? Is because he's not just coming from out there. He's coming from a sphere of power, a place of power that we need him to come from and to engage us in our lives. The storms calm with immediate effect. The demons are cast out with immediate effect because through divine power, Jesus confronts evil. The action of grace shows up in places of darkness, territory held by the devil. And when that divine power confronts evil, it invades the territory that evil thinks it's holding onto, and it drives it out. Man, man, we need to remember this when we look at the headlines. We need to remember this lest we despair. But we, we also shouldn't stray from the larger implications in Mark 4 and 5 because while it is true that uh, on the dark and stormy sea and the place of the tombs that evil was at work, believe it or not, evil is at work right here in this room as well. Just as evil was at work earlier in Mark 4 when they're up in northern Galilee in the cove and things are nice and beautiful and peaceful, evil was at work. That's why Jesus said, hey, listen, because you're falling asleep spiritually. That's why in the room he says to the disciples, you don't get this? If you don't get this, how are you going to get anything? Evil was present, working in doubt and unbelief. <laughs> In case you didn't know this, and uh, you know, I, I just want to remind you that, like, when you walk through the doors, you're not like coming into a holy, sanctified place where evil isn't existing, where evil can't reach, where evil can't touch. 
where spiritual dullness can't take over, where disinterest or doubt doesn't have some place. And once again, then, what we need is we need Jesus to show up from another place of power. And, you know, uh, there may be times when I say, hey, listen up. You know, it looks like you're not with me here. But, you know, most of the time when Jesus shows up in a place like this, he is showing up to subvert the evil and the power. Sometimes it's confronted head on in our lives, and especially in the context of a service like this or in a Bible study, the Word of God is confronting the evil, but it's underneath subverting the work of evil that often kind of attaches itself to our lives. Because I don't know what you're thinking right now. I mean, you don't have pitchforks and you're not throwing stuff at me, so I'm just assuming you like me still and we're on the same page, but I don't know that for sure. But God does, His Spirit does. And that's where the Word is going to be directed. And it subverts then in your life. And it undoes in your life. And once again, why faith is so vitally important in the equation. Our privilege then, as a Jesus-worshipping community, is to say with all clarity that Christ has power. And that power both confronts and that power subverts. And that Christ in power has come and his coming has conquered sin and has conquered death. And as um, Fleming Rutledge, who I, I read often, she wrote, sin and death has been undone and conquered by Jesus definitively, conclusively, and finally. And I love those three words. That Christ has come and conquered sin and death and has done so definitively, conclusively, and finally. And you know, right now we're in this in-between time and it's hard, it's hard to believe it, right? I mean, you know what happens after the disciples get to the other side of the shore and the sea is calm? Is that more seas... Uh, more raging comes to the seas over time. See, a Galilee still a stormy place. Horrible place, they say, to try to navigate in a boat because of the way it's situated and the suddenness of the storms and the fierceness of the storms. Seas are still stormy. The man is delivered from his demons. Those demons never return to that man. The Lord has shown mercy to him. But other demons... Demoniacs were all over the place. And the same is true today. So what, what has actually happened then through Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ has undone sin and death definitively, conclusively, and finally. Well, this again is why faith calls us to believe in Jesus as the one who brought about the defeat of sin and death. But to remember that the way he defeated it was through his own life. It was at the expense of his life that sin and death were defeated. And, and you know, we're going to celebrate that in just a little bit here at the table. Uh, in, in, in just a few weeks down the road, we're going to have an entire week devoted to meetings in the evening, and they're going to talk about leading up to Good Friday. Because you see, Jesus defeats sin and death 
at the expense of his own life. The king of peace enters into another kind of storm. He goes to another kind of tomb, another place of death, and he does so willingly, confidently, and powerfully. But the storm that day was so bad that it turned the sky dark in the middle of the day when the sky should have been at its brightest. The power of evil was so great that day that it blinded people to the truth of Jesus and, 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 and evil came over them to such an extent that they had an uncontrollable rage and fury, much like the demon-possessed man and garrisons, but only they took Jesus and they mocked him and they beat him and they falsely accused him and they turned him over to the authorities and those men took Jesus and they humiliated him and they beat him and eventually they nailed him to a cross. You see, the power of evil was so great, but Jesus allows the forces of evil then to drive him out of the city and for those forces to nail him to a cross so that he would be lifted up, raised up, and publicly put to shame. You know, I, I had to stop and I had to ask myself, well, why do we sing songs about this? It's gruesome. It's brutal. It's inhumane. It's godless what they did to Jesus. Why do we sing songs about this? And the old rugged cross is probably in the last 150 years one of the most popular songs that still sung today. Why do we sing about a cross being glorious or a cross being wonderful or a cross being a place where we should want to go and find help? Why, why do we do this? Why do we come to this table every single week and celebrate and remember and act so horrific, so inhumane? Why, why do we do this? Well, we do it because as those dark and desperate hours unfold there on Golgotha's hillside, what we see is Jesus showing the world that he possessed the power that evil could not undo. Amen. And so we reach back into that story and we're reminded that Jesus in that moment is showing evil a power that evil could never undo. And it is the power then that carries forward to us today. It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to we Gentiles. But you know the power that was shown wasn't just raw power, but it was power wrapped in love. It was power wrapped in love. When an army goes forward to defeat another army, it doesn't do so in love. It does to destroy, to brutalize. But when the power of Jesus goes forth and undoes evil and breaks the power of sin and death, it comes to us in love for God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. For the son did not come to condemn the world, but the world through him might indeed be saved. 
You see, it was the power of love and forgiveness that broke through the storm that day on Golgotha's hillside. It was the power of love and forgiveness that broke the chains of death and sin when Jesus cries out, It is finished. And then what comes after it's finished? The calm. The peace. The first day of the week. Resurrection. The eighth day of creation in which we now live and wait for its fullness and completion. As I'm headed to St. James this morning and Jesse's in the car with me and we're riding along and I'm like, I mean, I, there's got to be some scientific reason I understand this, but I just don't know what it is that after a storm, the next day, it's bright and beautiful and peaceful and calm. And after the storm on Golgotha's hillside, on the third day, Jesus steps out of the tomb. And we are invited by faith into his life, for he is the king of peace. And whatever is going on in this world, whatever storms may be erupting in our lives, we always are safe in the kingdom of God. So let me ask you, question I've been asking and I want to keep asking. Maybe this is the first time you've heard about Jesus, or maybe you've heard about Jesus many times. What further evidence do you need before you will fully trust your life to Jesus Christ? What more do you need to know before you will with a volitional Action with will and heart and love and devotion, give yourself fully to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who brings both a subversive and a confrontational power from a place of love. Evil is out to destroy things, Jesus is out to restore things and to bring about a full restoration with a love so pure that it will deliver eternal peace to a chaotic world. And so this question of faith that looms large over both chapter 4 and chapter 5 and what we will get into in the weeks to come is a question that has to be asked and answered. And this question of faith that is narrowed down to one single question with one single answer and with one single response the disciples asked the question in verse number 41. It's recorded for us in chapter 4 when they say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now just remember, this isn't the first miracle they've seen Jesus do. But it was such a powerful miracle with such personal implications that they step back and they think to themselves, Who is this guy? we've attached ourselves to, that even the wind and the seas obey him. And that's the question I'm asking you today. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Well, Jesus actually answers that question in the next setting in chapter number 5, that after he uh, delivers the man from his demonic possession, the man wants to go with him. And uh, verse number 19, Jesus says, Nope, sorry you got to go home to your friends and you got to tell them 
how much the Lord has done for you. Who is this Jesus? He is the Lord who has done much for us in that he has shown mercy. I mean, can you imagine it? I mean, this guy, he's dangerous. And you see him walking into your town, and you're like, oh no, Let, you know, close the windows, bar the doors, get the kids inside. This guy's here, and he's like, oh wait, no, no, I'm okay now, because I met this guy, his name is Jesus. Hey, let me tell you what he's done for me. He showed me mercy. I'm not running through the hillsides cutting myself. I'm no longer controlled by demons. I'm now controlled by his love. You see, the Lord that day showed mercy to the disciples. He showed mercy to the man possessed by demons. Let me ask, do you remember the first time you could understand that the Lord showed you mercy? Have you, have you rehearsed lately in your life? Throughout your life, whether you're young or you're old, you're somewhere in between. The times that the Lord came to you and showed you mercy. You say, wait, that's Jesus. I know who he is. By faith, I, I have his identity wrapped up in my mind and in my heart, and I'm following him, the one who showed me mercy. Maybe the light of the Lord's mercy is just starting to shine in some of your lives. And you, and you need more help. You need some, somebody to sit down and pray with you, talk with you, help you to see and understand what does it mean. Well, well what should you do? Well, for one thing, don't be like these townspeople, like, hey, get out of here, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. Move towards his mercy. Move towards his mercy. I pray that you might consider it this morning. Take a close look at the king of peace. And if the Lord has shown mercy to you, make sure you go tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And now, um, as we just take a few moments to consider it, let us be mindful that you are indeed the king of peace. You are the one who has showed us mercy. And we celebrate it at your table this morning, Lord. I'm going to give you just a few moments to think about these things. Compare yourself and your own heart and life for the communion that we'll share together.